You are listening to the FDNY Pro Podcast featuring members of the New York City Fire Department. We want to share stories from the field, best practices, lessons learned, and help save lives. Welcome to the FDNY Pro Podcast. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. Today's topic is technology in the fire service, specifically drones and robotics. With us today is Battalion Chief Anthony Pascacello and Captain Mike Leo. Gentlemen, good to have you here. We appreciate it. Maybe you guys could take a minute at a time, just give a brief bio and uh, where you worked, where you started to, to sure. where you are now. Battalion Chief Anthony Pascacello, 18 years on the fire department. I started in ladder 22 and then transferred to squad 18 as a firefighter. I was promoted to a lieutenant, covered in the 3rd Division for uh, several years, and then I was transferred to Ladder 163 in uh, Woodside, Queens. Got promoted to captain and covered in the 11th Division, was the captain of 211 for several years. And then I took a detail to the Fire Department Operations Center here at headquarters, where I ended up staying for approximately two and a half years, which is kind of where I got my start in this program. And then a year ago, I got promoted to Battalion Chief, assigned to the 3rd Division, where I'm covering presently. I have 18 years as well. Ironically, we, uh, we were in the same proby class and same squad. Yep. <laughs> uh, so uh, out of there, I went to Ladder 107 in Brooklyn. I spent about three years there before going to Squad 41. Spent about 12 or 13 years there. And after getting promoted to captain, I was detailed to ops, basically to work on UAS and robotics program. It's an exciting area to talk about. It's growing in leaps and bounds. It's definitely uh, one of the hottest topics, I would say, when it comes to technology in the fire service. Maybe for our listeners, you could start at the beginning, start at the origins of the unit. It's attached right now currently to the command tactical unit, which is part of operations and, and the operations center. The program started approximately three years ago, almost four years ago, with the drones. The command tactical unit started probably around like 2006, post 9-11, as, as one of the outcomes of the McKinsey report and other things. The idea was to give the incident commander and also the executive staff at headquarters and command staff real-time situational awareness at any incident. Like I said, it was born out of 9-11 where we didn't have all the complete information that day. The idea behind this is to try to start now getting the complete information, real-time information for the incident commander and so forth and sector commanders to start making changes in strategy and tactics. And it started with, at the time, whatever technology was available, box cameras, vehicle-mounted cameras, mast-mounted cameras, and so forth. And then as time went on, it, it transitioned from the cameras to, like, GoPro units. And then from the GoPro units, we actually went to iPhones just doing a streaming service back to the command staff at headquarters and also, as time went on, to their iPads and iPhones. We also put a tablet at the command post so that the incident commander can see real-time information from the scene. About three years ago, drone use unmanned aircraft systems was starting to come to the forefront, and the department was kind of hesitant with it. We wanted to keep it with a national company where we had good security, where nobody would be able to overtake our drone and use it in an unwieldy manner. So what we did was we contracted with a company that made tethered drones, and that was the original drones and initial drones that we used the first operation where we used it in the Bronx at a multiple alarm, I was actually the officer in command tactical where we used it. And it was kind of like an earth-shattering moment for the department because it was the first time that the incident commander had real-time video from the roof that he could actually see what the sector was reporting back to him. The flight took place on March 6, 2017. Correct. At a Bronx second alarm. Yep. You know, you talked about them being hesitant at first. Mm -hmm. What are some of the hurdles? It's not just as simple as getting a drone and flying it and sending video back to the incident commander. There are so many stakeholders, especially in a city this size, 
uh, whether it be NYPD, FAA, aviation. So I think Tim Herlaka, who was the director of the FDOC at the time, created the tethered program. He did a great job of starting us on the crawl to success. Flying in a urban environment, we have several hurdles that are just, uh, you know, different from flying anywhere else in the United States. So inside the urban canopy, we have strong winds, unpredictable winds, lots of people. We have global navigation satellite system issues. Basically, the airspace is so complex and we have low-flying aircraft from other public safety agencies, along with the Coast Guard and media and business travel, sightseeing, all that, it comes into play. It's and one drive down the FDI Drive and you'll, you'll get it. Yeah, you'll <laughs> see plenty of it, yeah. Correct. You know, in the summer, they have the Nantucket seaplanes landing. Yep. And, and on top of that, we have yeah. the three airports, uh, yeah, yeah. Newark, LaGuardia, and JFK in close proximity, which makes it extremely tough. We also have magnetic interference problems. And all these issues are very hard to overcome. And the radio frequency spectrum in New York City on the 2.4 and 5.8 is like completely saturated. So we had all these problems. So I think starting with the tethered system operational was, was the smart thing to do. And then the hurdles aside is outside agencies and the FAA regulations really didn't exist so much when we started. And then they started to come into play. But the good thing was the FAA has been tremendously helpful in working with us to start the program and following through to get our certificate of authority to fly in New York City, and they work with us every step of the way for public safety. As far as the other agencies, they've also been working hand-in-hand with us, and right now we're kind of, because we were one of the early adopters, we're starting to help the other agencies start their programs as well. You mentioned that magnetic uh, interference. Can you explain that? I'm curious. So a lot of these systems use compasses for their flight systems. So just like you would get that interference with a regular handheld compass, once the drones get this interference, their flight systems don't calibrate correctly, and it becomes a major problem to... uh, What causes that interference? Heavy metal, dense building materials. So skyscraper, subways, metal plating, piers, uh, and we have plenty of it in New York City. So it's it's something... uh, that, that we're trying to overcome. It's, it's one of probably our biggest hurdle right now. And there's also the, the hurdles of the data and privacy issues, you know, you wouldn't Correct. normally think of. Correct. We've been pretty fortunate that we haven't had any issues with it. All of our drones are clearly marked with the department marking. So when it goes up, it's just like seeing any apparatus on the street. The public clearly knows who it is. It's kind of looked at as like a, a normal thing now. I think by most most New Yorkers. But we are aware of those issues and we are instituting policies that, you know, that that respect privacy and so forth and and the rules that regulating agencies put forth for us. But we work heavily with legal. You know, this is kind of one of the programs in the department that we kind of, as we go along, we have them side by side with us to make sure that we're making all the right decisions and moves on our policies. I wanted you to talk more about the capabilities and some of the exciting things out there. But one thing that stuck out to me, I remember questioning myself. I'm like, why do we have a tethered drone? It seems so, I don't know, pedestrian at that point. But when I was talking to you last time, you explained about some of the actual advantages of how you'd be able to use that tool over the longer term. Correct. Could you just talk about that briefly? I thought it was interesting. So the tethered drone, basically it's power and it's communications back forth works through a tether. It's it's on a, a cable reel, and as the drone goes up, its maximum height is 200 feet. We operate anywhere from 150 to 200 with it, and as it goes up, the tether plays out and, and is attached to it. The, the advantage of that is that if for a long-term operation, and we have had one where we utilize that tether drone for about approximately seven to eight hours steady, it allows us for a long-term duration where 
the smaller drones, you have batteries and you have to constantly land it, change it out, and, and you're limited on your flight time. So the tether drone keeps us up in the air for a long period. You can't really do any kind of lateral or horizontal movements with it, but for an overall view of, of a scene, it works very well. We envision using it again in the future more for like a special events type thing where we had a large-scale incident or a public gathering and we want to put it up away from their area, basically monitoring the whole scene for any kind of a situation. We we look at it as like an event where maybe we're going to have EMS resources there and, you know, we get a report of somebody that's ill or something. We can kind of zero in, focus in on the exact location and determine what, what resources would be needed for that. So it does have a part in our arsenal, but for the day-to-day stuff, we, we kind of use the untethered drones now. Yeah, and there, it seems the technology is growing in leaps and bounds. There's so many Correct. different types, and I, I just don't, I only know a little bit about it. So let's just talk on some of the more exciting aspects of the drones that are out there, like two that I think were most impressive, and this goes from drones to robotics, was the Emily, especially where we are here with the amount of waterways we have, sure. and also the confined space drone. Sure. So when we talk about drones, we, we talk about missions and applications, where we're going to use them. As you discussed, there is a mission for our tethered drone and always will be. In addition to the things that the chief mentioned, communications also plays a, a big part in a tethered drone because it could lift a communications package in the future where if we lose all communications, we can kind of create our own towers. And some of those other missions, which the main one we're using it for right now is situation awareness, and as we go down that mission list, we touch on special operations with our rescue capabilities and with high angle. We did a little training the other day, and we can see things from almost a mile away with the optics that we have on some of these. So if we had a high angle incident. Like we, a hanging scaffold, Yeah, we'd be instance. able to, or a crane incident, we'd be able to see that far in advance of somebody actually getting on scene. And we might be able to get the resources moving faster than they would be. Certainly, there's a lot of collapse potential with drones as well as confined space areas. We're also using them for inspections, building inspections, arson investigation, safety investigations. There's a lot of missions and applications that we can use these for. So I I think we're right now at the tip of the iceberg of where we're headed for the future. And then we have uh, other devices like the EMILY device, which is a remotely operated marine vehicle that has side scanning sonar. And what's interesting about EMILY, it gives us the ability to see what's under the water. So in the future, it might be that we can have the Emily search for what we're looking for and send the scuba divers right to that that location rather than them do the work underwater, and which explain, is taxing yeah. and difficult. Explain what the Emily is so, so our listeners have a, a vision in their head. So it's a tiny little boat. It's like a three-foot boat that looks like a buoy, and it has dual capabilities. So there's two different types of these Emilies. One is for swift water where it can get out to a victim and they can cling on to it. And the other one is the and side scanning. how do you scanning locate? Is it a sonar? One of them has the side scanning sonar. Right. And then the, is that for a search? That would be for a search or to look for an item. But the other worth that these devices bring is because New York City has a lot of factory water intakes where it really hazardous for our divers. Underneath the piers for a pier fire, they can go under there with thermal imaging and regular optics to kind of see what's going on under there and really mitigate a lot of the risk to our divers, which is dangerous enough, yeah. as we know. Sure. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that confined space drone. Sure. We demoed that at the Fire Academy. It was called the Elios. It's basically a small drone in a carbon fiber cage, a round cage. We tested it in two applications. We went to the ship simulator, which was kind of unique because it's all metal. So we wanted to see how the signals transmitted. And we utilized it basically like if it was some sort of industrial confined 
tank or something. At first, when you visualize it, it will took a little used to getting used to compared to the normal applications with drones outside and everything. But with its lighting capabilities and everything, you could see definitely it had a, a good place for us, particularly if it was anything questionable with atmosphere and where we had to really send somebody in. Then what we did was we took it over to the field house at The Rock, and what we did was we started going through the different buildings. You know, And some of those buildings have collapse simulation in there. And I have to say that our, our pilots, when they started flying it, it was very easy for them to use. It was very successful. But we also, just on a whim, took it into the subway simulator. And that's where we really thought we saw our worth with it. Um, one of the things that it did was we landed it onto the floor of the subway car. And to save battery resource, it'll also roll, sort of like a camera that rolls. And, yeah, and, ex- and explain to the listeners also, it's like a drone where the rotors are encaged. So there's no damage, you know, there's no right. danger to, it can to anybody. Bounce off walls. Correct. Yes, yeah. it, it can bounce and, and take a hit without, without crashing or anything like that. But the subway simulator kind of opened our eyes because we saw that where it would go along the floor of the subway car where we could do two things. We could see potential victims, but we could also see if there was any kind of secondary devices in that car, you know, hazardous to our members. So we thought it had a great application. And it was ironic because it had been used in Europe. One of the applications was a post-fire investigation in a, in a car garage. The garage had some collapse areas and everything, and they used that to basically work their post-fire investigation and um, we were definitely sold on it. We definitely saw that it had some great applications for us here in the FDNY. Well, we've had parking garage collapse Correct. where we've left units until the building's been Correct. demoed. One other one stood out to me. It was the, uh, the robot that could drag the two, three-and-a-half-inch lines in. Yes. And now the obvious use that we'd probably think of as a taxpayer, where we're just putting water on a fire, on a, on a roof. Maybe you could tell us about that. And then what do you think the critics would say who say, well, this is taking firefighter jobs and... What's your stance? Is it about firefighter we, safety? We heard that in the academy while we were testing it out by at least 10 firefighters. Yeah, so. ten, 10 different guys came to us, you know. I'll take every, that line every, in. <laughs> yeah, everybody's great for telling you that, but when you start moving three and a half, so all of a sudden the, uh, the attitude changes. And I can tell you one specific incident where the mindset started changing. We had an incident in North Queens where the incident commander was presented with the drone at a collapse site. And the same thing, command tactical responded. They said, well, chief, we have the drone. And he kind of was like, drone, what do I need a drone? And then when they put it up and he saw the overall scale of the collapse, he was sold. He was sold on it. And you want to know something? As time has gone on, as we've used it more and more, when we report into the command post now and say, chief, we have the tablet, here's the tablet, we have the drone up, they're like, great, can you show me exactly this area? And they're asking you to pinpoint specific locations. And it really has helped, particularly because these drones have the thermal imaging and forward infrared cameras. And when you look at stuff differently through the thermal imaging or FLIR, it changes things dramatically as far as strategy and tactics. Because a lot of times we're throwing resources maybe at a part of a building that we're just wasting it, where we could actually you know, put them where they're much more needed and accomplish our task much faster. So, And some of those capabilities of the ground robots, specifically the firefighting ones, you know, they're able to go into a, a structure basically when we've pulled everyone out. And their streams can reach like 15 stories high. They put out a tremendous amount of water. Most people know that they were used in the Notre Dame fire in Paris, effectively used. I think they have other capabilities as well. They can be used for shielding for counterterrorism task force. They can be used to carry things, move things. They have big winches on them. They can actually have different monitors and sensors that we could put on them. So they're useful, and they're just another tool in a toolbox, basically. And to cover the entire city with a few of these would be tough anyway, but 
it's basically one of those last resort devices. To me, I look at it as it's a remote monitor, a remote controlled large caliber stream. Instead of setting it up and tying it off to a street sign, now it has the ability to move a little bit further and a little bit easier. So change is always the toughest challenge in the fire service, but it's one of those tools that once they see its use, they'll be like, oh, how do we do you know, so long without if it? If you could eliminate putting people in the collapse. Absolutely, absolutely. The benefits are obvious. Mike, if you had to pick one area that you see the most operational benefit for our department from the drone and robotics program, what would you say? Right now, where technology is, we're using it for situation awareness, which is probably the biggest asset for us right now. Going forward and for the future uses, I think we're going to see a lot in tunnels, confined spaces, collapse scenarios, and the drones in conjunction with robots. I mean, we could do some amazing things. Even right now, the technology is out there where we can basically, in a large-scale collapse, we can drop little robots that basically monitor the air, have seismic, acoustic listening uh, capabilities, and basically also send a signal, create like a mesh network, and also give their GPS coordinates. So we would be able to pretty much take a whole collapse site and map it out with layers and know where the most probable rescue attempt could be made. And if it's in a dangerous location, we can send the right resources to to do that. I think that technology exists now, but it's difficult. I see in the future with the Internet of Things, we would like to, and we're currently working on this, is to get the fireboats in the marine unit to see what they're hitting with their stream and vice versa so we can see what they're doing. And then when we're operating in tunnels, we'd like to mesh out of the tunnel to see what's, what's going on inside the tunnel and share information. I think in the future we'll see the drone footage actually being maybe brought to a firehouse, maybe even to a apparatus that's responding in, where if you're responding on a second, third, or major event, you'll get that little bit of heads up, that awareness of what's going on. In addition to some, some other technical information that, that, that we could probably provide with eventually blueprints of hardened targets and schematics of tunnels and, and those things. So we're looking at an all-around approach. I've seen some amazing video where the, uh, the drones leave the, uh, the building before the apparatus. <laughs> Very interesting. But, uh, and I, I don't want to get too deep into like the mesh network, but maybe explain to our listeners what a mesh network is. Because there are other pieces of technology that we're looking at when there, there is a mesh network at a scene, you know, whether it be from your ICBA, your breathing rate, your air availability. But maybe explain uh, uh, what a mesh network is. A mesh network basically is uh, a bunch of nodes or devices that they'll all talk to each other and send the signal to a network end user eventually. So if one of those devices were to something happen to it where it would go offline, the other devices would pick up that spot and basically it's self-healing. And the military and European departments have been using this for a, a long, long time. So And it's here and we're starting to use it now and uh, they're actually selling it for home Wi-Fi networks now. So it's something that you can use, and, and it's, it's very reliable as long as you have the nodes where they're supposed to be. And uh, I think we can harness this technology relatively soon. So we've touched on the fact of how complicated the whole program is, and it's not just a matter of getting a drone and flying it. Tell us about what's required for every time that drone goes up in the air. So before we fly, we follow a checklist every time. We notify the FAA. We'll notify air traffic control of where we're flying and how high we're flying. We'll notify NYPD operations. And then we also have to do a check, and we use applications to do this for any temporary flight restrictions that may exist. And that happens quite often in New York City for VIP events, sporting events, the UN General Assembly, the U.S. Open. So 
we always have to check uh, where we're going. And we can get permission to fly inside those temporary flight restriction zones, but we need permission from the person who actually put that in place. And we often receive the approval to fly in those places relatively quickly from the FAA. Can you tell me more about the licenses requirements for our pilots? I mean, how many do we have? What type of training do they go through? The department has about 20 to 30 pilots, but within CTU, we have probably about 10 pilots. Those pilots operate under our certificate of authority from the FAA. And we have what's known as a jurisdictional COA, which is your certificate of authority. And basically, that kind of spells out what we can and cannot do operationally. The department requires that these members have their Part 107, which is uh, their drone license from the FAA. And then we send them for some additional training in upstate New York for operators course and then advanced operators course. And in addition to that, I think in the future, we'll uh, probably be adding some other classes as we go forward and bringing some of them in-house. We have a tech-savvy squad, pilots from all around the job. So the same operator that can operate a drone will also be able to operate other varying degrees of autonomous vehicles as well. And and I think to be successful in a stressful condition and we get a terrorist attack or something happens at a large-scale event, you need the person who's operating needs to be spot on, an expert. And uh, I think that's where the real worth in the program is. You know, they're good on the computer, they're good on the drone, they're good on robots and data storage and everything else that's related to it. So it's kind of a, a unique community within the department, but it's one that we're calling and expanding on a, on a regular basis. They put together like a perfect unit. Some of the pilots are experts in GIS, and others are broadcast technology. Others are drone racing. So they kind of already put together this great group of members that are all experts in their own field. And as a team, they're just so much better working uh, with each other. How about collaboration with some of the other agencies? I know NYPD yes. Aviation has to be uh, one of your partners. How is that going? It's going very well. We had a large-scale summit earlier in the year with a lot of our partner agencies, OEM, NYPD, Port Authority, FAA, FBI, and it went very well. We have a good working relationship with them all. We have an agreement with them, you know, as far as a large-scale incident so that we can coordinate our operations together. And it actually is going very well. And it, and it really just worked on a one-on-one basis of reaching out and saying, hey, can we sit down and discuss this? And we've gone very well with this whole process. So well, in fact, that we continue to collaborate on maybe some training programs and some other summits. And well, the future is here and everybody has a stake in it. And there's a, yes. a big safety aspect yes. as well. So yes. coordination we, makes sense. We, sh- we do a lot of information sharing. What kind of software are you using? Which aircraft are working for you? Etc. It, it works very well, actually. Since you guys have been involved from the very beginning, and it's just growing in leaps and bounds, and the technology is leapfrogging upon itself, where do you see it? Five years out, ten years out? I think the New York City Fire Department is going to be a leader on the forefront with this. Right now, we're on a small scale where we have just a minimal amount of equipment, but we're envisioning where it could be even at like the division level, where a division pulls up and they have a small drone that they can put up immediately for whatever resources they need. You know, a hazmat situation, sitting there with binoculars and guidebooks trying to determine what the product is, where we just throw the drone up, he streams it right back to hazmat's resource member in the back of the rig, and he knows instantaneously exactly what we have. I think the time factor that it's saving is tremendous, and I think we're going to probably get to a point where even in a mega high-rise fire, if we had a downed member, where we'd be able to pinpoint them from the outside where their location is. So I think it's, it's definitely increasing, and I see the use and the acceptance 
within the department and in the fire service alone has being increased dramatically. It's such an exciting area in the fire service. Thank you for coming down today. It's been great. I'm your host, Battalion Chief Brian Mulry. For more training and information from our subject matter experts, go to FDNYPro.org. FDNY Pro is online at FDNYPro.org. Subscribe today and get inside access to the FDNY. Learn more about our publications, professional conferences, and other tools for first responders. Train with New York's Bravest. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, three hundred and sixty-five days a year, and when seconds count, the men and the women of the FDNY are there for us to protect us and keep us safe when the unthinkable happens. No matter the challenge, no matter the danger, our firefighters and EMTs serve with honor, dedication, and bravery. New York's bravest are there for us. Let's be there for them. Your support of the FDNY Foundation ensures that the world's best fire department has the world's best training, equipment, and education. Go to FDNYFoundation.org and help New York's bravest save a life today.